Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to click the got it. Yeah. Hey everyone, welcome to the A to Z of Sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth Bisbee. I'm a registered psychologist and accredited advanced gender, sex, and relationship diversity therapist, speaker, author, and most latterly resident specialist therapist on Open House, The Great Sex Experiment, second season of which is running on Channel 4, and you can download both seasons to binge watch on all four. We are working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time, and today the letter is Q, and Q is for quirky. Joining me to have a fun conversation today all about quirkiness is Terry Stewart. She's a 37-year-old Scottish author that's based in Edinburgh, although over her life has lived and worked in Barcelona, Venice, London, Abu Dhabi, and Stockholm. Professionally, she's currently an associate lecturer in history with The Open University. However, in her life, she's been a croupier, waitress, wine advisor, and an RAF reservist intelligence officer. For the past 10 years, she's also been a history and English teacher, although has since moved into further education. She has four degrees and is working on her fifth in Latin and classics. She has seven years of nonfiction writing experience and has written nearly 40 academic history articles for History UK, and these are all available online. The unofficial Terry <laughs> is a member of the King community and has been since about 14 years old. She married an RAF officer when she was 24 and they had a non-monogamous marriage. And she ended up being really good friends with his dominatrix. We definitely have to talk about this. Yes. They traveled the world and had endless adventures as part of the King community. This relationship ended when she was 29 because he cheated. And we'll talk about that as well, because sometimes people don't think that you can cheat when you're non-monogamous. So true. I know. Exactly. Um, and she's currently in a married monogamous relationship. It's the BDSM part of the relationship that's important to her, not necessarily the monogamy, non-monogamy. She's a podcaster and writer, and she's currently writing and so far self-publishing a series of contemporary upmarket women's fictions. The difference is that the series is entirely based around the King community. So welcome to the show. We will talk about this. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's one hell of an introduction. <laughs> I know you will. You are the definition of quirky. So there it is. <laughs> Hooray! And I will take it. Thank you. It's great. Um, uh, yeah, no, I was in a, um, um, a, a polyamorous, well, a non-monogamous slash polyamorous marriage, and that ended because he cheated. Um, and I always remind people that cheating is about breaking agreements. Absolutely. That's exactly right. And I, when I was kind of coming out of that marriage, I was explaining to friends and, you know, a, a lot of my close friends obviously knew about our sort of, um, what they would have called like an open relationship, not but non-monogamous. And some were incredibly confused by the idea that he could have cheated. And I, even when I explained, like they were obviously very sweet and they were, you know, they believed what I was saying, but I could see that they still didn't quite understand. Yeah, they don't often get it. Um, it, it, it it's because they think of it as if you're not monogamous, that's a free for all. Exactly. And anything goes and there are no, um, I don't really like the word rules, but you know, yeah, there are, there are no boundaries. Well, no agreements, no agreements and no boundaries. Yeah. I mean, exactly. there are rules. I don't know why people don't like the word rules. There are rules. We make agreements, we make boundaries. Yeah, um, it's, you're right. It's true. And, and relationships run better when we have agreements. Yeah, and I think. Absolutely. I'm, a, 
everyone said you can modify an agreement. So I never understood the need to cheat because all you need to do is have a conversation. Exactly. And it's it's so simple. That's kind of the irony. And I think that's what kind of drove me apart from obviously, obviously all the, the hurt and the pain and everything. It's like that was so baffling to me where, you know, he could have had the experience that he had absolutely fine. It wouldn't have caused any problems had he been honest about it. And yet he wasn't. So it was it was really jarring for me to kind of understand, you know, why would you do that? What was the point? And it wasn't like, you know, um, it was a kink where he maybe got off on the secrecy of it because it devastated our relationship. You know, it wasn't about that. It was just the whole thing was incredibly it just felt really sort of sadly pointless. <laughs> yeah, no, my, I mean, mine, mine, mine um, lied for six months. I mean, he had an actual affair. And, um, and the reason is because he knew I would have said no about that person because the person was crazy. Like, it's, yeah, <laughs> drama, bring, drama bringing, crazy making human being. And I, I was really clear that I did not want that in my life. And it was like, well, you were lazy. You could have gone and found any one of a number of people that I would have been perfectly happy with you seeing. And I wouldn't have, it would have been none of my business, but you chose yeah. somebody within our local community. Um, you know, my son at, was at school and it was his best friend's mother. Oh my God. And my son was little. And so you chose somebody who was known to be crazy and who, you know, and who then talked about it, this whole thing the whole time while it was going on, all sorts of people knew, and I didn't know anything because I was the one who was working. So, you know, um, and it was this huge drama. And when the relationship ended, it was a huge drama and she was threatening me. And I mean, it was just awful. Um, and that was completely avoidable. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, that, <laughs> that must make it worse. Completely avoidable. It was like, you, you know, the reason I, that's the reason I would have said no is because that was all predictable. All yeah. you needed to do was get up off your ass and look for somebody which you chose not to do. Yeah. No, that was the end of the marriage. I was like, yeah, that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I don't, I don't need, if you can't even be honest about that. But that's the thing. It completely breaks the trust, doesn't it? And then I think that's in any relationship, that's the hardest thing to ever come back from. You know, if yeah. you can't trust somebody, then yeah. yeah I, I mean, you know, how do you repair that? Where do you go from there? Um, I mean, you can come back from it, but it usually takes some pretty significant therapy um, right. and, and some pretty significant motivation. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well, there and, you and go. It depends on the level of breaking the trust. You know, um, um, I've had other experiences where somebody kind of like didn't keep the um, spirit of the law, you know, oh. <laughs> right? They kept, like the letter of the yes. law, but not yes. the spirit of the law. And right. that was easier to come back from because it was like, you know, come on, you knew this was not okay. Yes. You know, but, um, but, you know, particularly with prolonged lying, I mean, the thing, the thing that's problematic, as you say, is the trust and it's the lying, it's not the other stuff. No, exactly. I mean, it, it was similar and um, with the way my relationship ended, because what had happened was he had actually um, slept with this person uh, two years previously had covered. I happened to be away. I think I was away with a friend in Vienna and I had knew nothing about it. I would never have found out about it either. You know, nobody knew it was it was completely, uh, you know, secret. But yet he he just one day felt the need to tell me, um, two years after the fact, and it just obliterated that two years. It was you know it was incredibly odd as well. Um, but 
Yeah, we live and learn. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, people are people are unique and individual, and we know this. Um, yes. So, I mean, you've had some really interesting varied life experience, which obviously, as an author, I know that the more interesting our lives are, the more interesting often our writing is, because you know we we we've experienced odd things. Yes. Well, here's uh, <laughs> yeah. You know. So, um, it, it, I think being part of the kink community is always an interesting statement when people say it because it sounds like there's one community yes <laughs> like there's one place you go and one group of people you meet up with yeah, yeah. here they it's are obvious uh, and easy and yeah and I find it so interesting because um you know so I've been kinky since I was what 14 13 whatever from the beginning yeah. of my sexuality and for me, um, like you, and I know you heard me say this in the talk, I mean, that's my sexual orientation. So for me, the important bit was the kink. It wasn't um, the gender. Yes. That wasn't the issue. Um, but the kink was always important. If the kink wasn't there, then I I have no sexual interest. I might like you an awful lot, but I have no sexual interest. <laughs> yes. Um, um, but I didn't actually become part of an out community really in public until, I don't know, I did a little bit in the US before I left, but that wasn't like being part of a community. I became part of a community in the US when I came back to doing more kink in 2008. And I did a little bit in 2004 and 2005, which still sounds like a long time to people, but considering I've been kinky since the late seventies. That's, you know, that's not yeah. <laughs> in the scheme of things, but I, but I wasn't in public. And I think people don't realize there are a lot of people who are not community members who choose not to be parts of any community who still incorporate this into their relationships. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And also, like you said, it can very much depend on where you are in the world as well. And what, you know, like you were saying, you know, from the seventies onwards, I mean, and I got really involved in kink community when I moved to England and was near London because all of a sudden there was there was a community. Whereas in Scotland, obviously, you know, you've you've recently moved here, and there is, you know, but it's it's far less. It's tiny. Yeah, it's less visible. It's kind of, you know, and when I was sort of growing up and and obviously very much like yourself, always kinky, always knew this. The internet had just sort of come around. But, you know, I didn't know how to use it. Like, <laughs> I had no idea how to access any of this. Um, and sort of that came later. And it was going to events and, you know, things like we had. Um, it used to be, I don't even know if it still exists. Like Club Noir was like a sort of burlesque event, which was always really fun. But it was very much the sort of, you know, softer end of the scale. And then sort of thing, people who aren't even kinky would go to because it was beautiful and funny, you know. And um, I guess like Torture Garden, very, very light. <laughs> Um, but then when you kind of experience a bit more and you meet people and then you hear of other things, then you start to explore and understand. And yeah, I mean, you know, in London, there's a much wider variety of things. And I've never actually experienced the kink community in America, but I've never really spent any dedicated time there. So, well, I mean, so it depends on, again, it depends on where you are. I identify as leather and leather is a, a specific subset. Um, and I've spent a lot of time since 2008 
and nine in the POC leather community. And so again, that's another subset. Um, of course, there are more people in America. So, it, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's easier to find, I think, places and things and events um, than it is here. But also because I'm a therapist and a coach as, as well, I, you know, I've been hesitant to be too involved in a community in the UK because, um, you know, you're working with people. And so you don't really want, you don't really want to run into your clients, um, at an event where you're playing. Um, but also then, you know, then there was also, I was doing a lot of, um, court work and I didn't want to be, you know, one day have somebody turn up in my office, um, for an assessment that, you know, I'd seen in a club a few weeks before, right. You know, oh, that'd be I'm, awkward. Yeah. It'd be very awkward. Um, and, and then, and then I, this television show and um even though i've been very out and very public um and they knew who i was when they hired me um there's still a morals clause which is really interesting what even what does that even look like what is that? i don't even know well i mean so i actually spoke to um, a lawyer about it before i signed the thing because it was like well they can't really they can't really invoke that for things they already knew about you right well, of course yeah um and because they hired you anyway right yeah. so it, it's like but but i i've chosen to be but i don't think it would be good for pictures of me to end up in the press right no fair enough right uh -huh. and so that but then again that means that limits what i can do in public yeah it's it's true there's it's i find yeah i was a teacher for 10 years in secondary schools and so you cannot be public about anything um, and even though, you know, it's it's all adult for a start, it's all consensual, you know, there should there shouldn't ever be the opportunity of run uh, it's, it's every, every teacher's first nightmare to like run into a, a student at like, for example, a fetish event or something like that. But it shouldn't happen because they're underage. Um, and I can happily say it never did happen to me or actually anybody that I know. But it's this idea that it would be the the adult that is would be punished in this scenario like you know my um I have left secondary teaching so I'm now I can talk about this and it's great but I just think this this kind of idea because we have a there's a morality clause there as well and it's just so archaic and it doesn't it doesn't really make any sense for you know for what you're asking because in order to to work in these communities to be a teacher you need to have passed police checks and all of, so you are an upstanding members like you're fine you know you are right. safe you are a safe person so what you do in your own time with other adults should be nobody else's business and yet there's this strange thing and I, it's a little bit I don't know if it's like Scottish Puritanism as well it's that you've got to be whiter than white in some way or you, you know like like a pure person and it's just bonkers and also just a load of rubbish as well because we all have our thing whatever that may be you know um but yeah, it, it still irritates me that there's this kind of. It, it is, and it's really, I mean, it, and it can be really concerning, but also, I mean, I think things would be fine if people didn't, you know, then decide that they wanted to invite the media in and sell content to the media and things like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm you know, the articles that have been coming up in the press about one of the couples that have been on the show, um, there's like a ton of articles about them recently. And I'm and and they're just the way they're written are so crap. I mean, it's like, yeah, that's really not what happened, and everybody is actually fine, you know. Yeah. Um, 
but it's all this, ooh, you know, ooh, this, you know, and so somebody got in touch with me about, you know, what did I think about that? And, you know, did I feel responsible for, and I said, responsible for what? The couple are still together. They started an OnlyFans page and they're, they're, they're being sponsored by a big swing company. Amazing. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, um, I'm sorry, but like, I had nothing to do with that. Right. I, yeah. I, right. But clearly, clearly their foray for the first time on the show didn't damage them because they've started a whole new life based on this. So. Yeah, it's about so, perceptions of things and also with, with stuff like the media, it's what's going to get attention. And, you know, the more catastrophic something yet, or yeah, it's there's I mean, I think there was. Yeah, there's a lot of um, things on about OnlyFans sort of coming up and uh, uh, being discussed and stuff. And I think it's great discussions to have. But yes, I think the reality can be a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> I also think it's really funny because, you know, I had a conversation with somebody recently and I, that was upset at the, at the reaction of friends and family to the fact that they're doing OnlyFans. And I was like, OK, well, let's let's, you know, step back and look at what OnlyFans is. You're doing sex work. No, I don't have a problem with sex work. Neither do I. <laughs> you know, it's a judgment-free zone. Yeah. But you're doing sex work and you're doing it in public. And you're wondering why they're upset. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes, there's taking ownership of decisions as well, where it's like, you know, there's there is probably going to be some sort of fallout. That doesn't mean that's okay and in an ideal society. No. There wouldn't be, but, but- but you have to think these things through. And, and I find that people don't. It's like, okay, so you want to do this. Great. Yep. It would be liberating. Great. It would be fun. You'd like to make your whole living like this. Well, very few people do. Uh, well, we yeah, can fine. start there. We can start there. Very few people manage to make their whole living like this. Most of the people that I know who make their whole living like that were doing traditional porn already. So they were, right. they're well-known. They had an audience already. Um. Um, or were cam people. So they had an audience through doing cam work. Um, and then there's says you still have a limited life. Yeah. There is a certain point at which if your audience, maybe you can be successful in shifting your audience, maybe. And some people yeah. are, but for a lot of people, there's a life and it has to do with the attributes you're bringing and the condition of your body and all of that. And, um, and at that point, you're done. When that bit's done, you're done. And so what are you going to do then? You haven't thought about that. You also haven't thought about what impact what you did might have on what you want to do. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? I remember reading a few years back, I think, um, about Mia Khalifa. And she'd come out of um, foreign acting, I believe, and, you know, was doing other things, I think sports presenting or, or trying to. And it was just, you know, it was exponentially more difficult for her because she had been you know an adult movie actor like a porn actress and just how you know kind of unfair it was to to be stigmatized with something that again you know she had finished with and you know it was a choice that she had made and then she had come out and wanted to do something else and yeah it was much much more difficult yeah and and but of course that's because of prejudice a hundred percent exactly we know that's because of prejudice. It's, it couldn't be anything else. So um, it, it's, uh, but I like, I like people to take ownership of the decisions and to really think things through um, and to know that we make mistakes. All of us do, every one of us. And, you know, and we just have to own the mistake and figure out what it is 
that we want to do with that. Yes. You know? um, and I think a lot of times people don't actually have the skills to do that. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, it can be quite a daunting um, thing for a lot of people to kind of confront that. Uh, and like you say, take ownership and kind of accept that this is, you know, where they are and what they're doing and and what do you and what do you want to do now? Like where yeah, do you where do you want to go next? Yeah. <laughs> where do you want to go next? Um, um, which I always think is interesting. So you have four degrees already. Well, actually, I've just sorry, just gulping my tea there. I have just finished my fifth. Um, okay. So I just handed in my last assignment oh god in June uh so I don't know my classification anything yet but I know that I have passed so I have a, a BA in Latin and classics as well which is really cool. exciting what else did you get I'm interested um, yeah I so I started off uh studying history at Glasgow University love Glasgow I have to do a shout out to Glasgow it's one of my favorite places on earth um so I did an MA on history there and then I stayed on and did an MLit and then I actually started a PhD that I've never finished <laughs> Um, and my dad will be listening to this going, God's sake, one, could you just finish? And it's like, yes, eventually one day. Um, but when I was doing my PhD, I met my ex-husband. Um, and three weeks later, we were engaged. Nine months after that, we were married. Uh, and I moved to England, you know, blew up my life. My decision, 100% my decision. And just went, took a totally different path. And then a few years went by, I ended up in Abu Dhabi, where I did a teaching qualification. So I got my postgraduate diploma in teaching. Then did a master's in education because I thought, well, why not? <laughs> so during COVID, I was bored and had time. And so went back to school and did Latin and classics. So okay, what are you uh, going to do with the Latin and classics? Uh, well, do you know, it really informs my writing. And I know this sounds hilarious because I'm writing, you know, modern novels about the community. But um, it's amazing how much a grounding of Latin helps with the, with the English language interesting yeah I wouldn't have thought I I neither, neither did I and then and, and all of a sudden you see the etymology of so many words and so many things in Britain are informed by our kind of obsession with the ancient classical world so but honestly um, I just did it for fun <laughs> that doesn't surprise me um, um that doesn't surprise me at all um, <laughs> it's just the way things are here um cool I was just curious because <laughs> you know you don't you don't meet many people who have let's say how many degrees I've got one two three four well, I was gonna say you can't be far off exactly <laughs> but you did well, get it right, you see that well, and, and you know and maybe and maybe kind of five because of the coaching course that I did so there you go I I got I did the diploma in forensic medicine and science was the last one that I did because I got bored god that must be so interesting it was amazing it was amazing cool. um it was one of those situations where um i've always been a little bit of a detective so um this course came along that was for um um really designed for legal professionals and doctors to look at forensic medicine and right. science and the qualification is the one they use for you to be a forensic medical examiner at police stations and things right so if you pass the qualification it's um the, the course was done but but through the law society but it was um, administered by the society of apothecaries oh wow <laughs> the society of apothecaries was the original organization that qualified doctors in the united kingdom so 
that's how that came about. And I found, I don't remember how I found out about this. I just did. And I signed up on the course. Um, and I think I was in like the first class and um, Professor Vanessis, who was um, a forensic pathologist out of University of Glasgow, hmm. to me, um, you know, you can't take the exam. Huh. And I said, pardon? And he said, well, you've got to be either a lawyer or um, a bar, you know, like a lawyer a uh -huh. oh. or, or a doctor to get this qualification. And I was like, well, rubbish, rubbish. Yeah. You know, I've got a PhD. Why could yeah, why I know? That's the so strangest I, rule. Yeah. So I actually petitioned the Society of Apothecaries. And to this day, I believe I am the only non-lawyer or doctor who has that qualification. So they allowed me to do the dissertation and I sat the exam and I passed. And so I have a postgraduate diploma in forensic medicine and science. That is fabulous. The apothecaries. <laughs> it's the coolest thing. I know. Amazing. It was an absolutely cool course. And I'd gone up to um, University of Glasgow to um, see autopsies, to watch Professor Vanessa perform autopsies. Okay, people are finding out weird shit about me. <laughs> um, because I'd never seen an autopsy. And so I wanted to see one. Mm -hmm. Because we were studying forensic pathology as one of our units. Of course. And I was like, well, you're describing it and I'm seeing pick, but I've never been to one. So I wanted to go. So he invited me up to come up to Glasgow. And there was a disaster over in Europe around the time. So this was in 1998 eight or seven, eight. This was in 1998. And so there was like this disaster that happened and there were a lot of bodies Okay. And maybe it was during one of the wars, but there was body identification going on. Right. And so he got called away and didn't get back in time at the, the beginning of the day. And he was still waiting for a flight from Germany when I arrived and because he'd been doing body identification. Oh. And um, the medical students were waiting for their lecture on child abuse and they hadn't found anybody to take the lecture. Oh, and, and they were freaking out because they didn't have anybody to take the lecture. And so I was like, what, what's the lecture about? It's like about, about child abuse. And I said, well, the physical signs and things like that, I can use the template that, you know, the notes uh -huh. from the course. I don't know anything about that, but I can talk about a lot about psychology and the process and all of that. Cause that's shit that I do. Right. Yeah. I'm um, being an expert witness in, in court, like day in, day out. Um, and I, you know, worked with kids. And so, you know, and so they were like, we take them, we take the lecture. I love that. Talk about right place, right time. You're like, sure. Why not? <laughs> so I walked into this lecture hall, like at least 300 students, you know, making lots of noise. Yeah. <laughs> Going, who's this? This isn't who we're expecting. <laughs> um, and managed to get them to shut up and listen. I mean, and so I, I went and took the lecture. People even asked intelligent questions. Um, Great. That was that. Um, and they gave me a little honorarium for doing it. And then he came oh. back and um, and I went off and observed. Um, observed <laughs> autopsy. And he was That's like, an interesting day, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, he was like, did you take my lecture? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> and he just looked at me and shook his head and was like, OK, cool. I draw the line of anatomizing your body. You can do that. <laughs> yeah. I said, I didn't do the, you know, I didn't yeah. do the, the, the physical stuff. I talked about what was in the notes a little bit, but I spent most of the time on the psychology because that's what I could talk about. And he was Brilliant. like, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, he was like, you're something. And I was just yeah. like, yeah. 
I love that. That's so that's cool. A, that's a good way to describe me. Yeah. <laughs> And I just, it was so much fun. So yeah, no, um, it, it's just some bizarre thing. It's just because I was bored. I wanted something to do. It sounds like the pair of us get bored very easily. I I always thought of it as a weakness. And I'm now starting to see it as a strength. <laughs> I actually don't, you know, I kind of don't get bored easily. Oh, I do. I, I don't when, the, when there's something to be gotten out of something. So I'm quite tenacious. Right. Um, I don't like... Once I'm wound down, I don't, don't like lots of dead time. So I get bored if there's not, but there's never nothing anymore yeah. in my life. And so, um, you know, it's hard to, to describe it as getting bored. You know, it's like a lot of people who say they get bored easily will move from partner to partner quite quickly. We'll move, right? They're always, they need, always need novelty. Yeah. I can create novelty. Um, and so, well, any of us can. People don't realize, you know, interest is really just directed attention. So if you focus your attention on something long enough, you'll find it interesting. I okay. used to get people to do this experiment. You do the experiment that doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, we used to go to dentists and doctors and we didn't have mobile phones, so we couldn't access the Internet. They'd have magazines in the waiting area. Oh, God. And yeah. Back were, in the day. <laughs> yeah. And they were never things you wanted to read, really. Right. No. <laughs> But I would say to people, next time you go into one of those areas, find find something and focus your attention on it for half an hour and then tell me whether it was interesting or not. Oh, yeah. You know, so it, it's it's we have a lot more control um, than we often than we give ourselves credit. No, I think that's fair. No, with me, it's, it's just as soon as I learn how to do something, I need to go do the next thing and then the next thing. Um. so but hey, it, it keeps me busy. <laughs> Well, that's important. <laughs> so, um, so you made the move to um, from nonfiction to fiction. I understand that. Yeah. I've done a little bit of that myself. Still writing mostly nonfiction, but but at least writing stories that are fiction. Yes. Um, and um, how? First of all, how have you found that transition? Uh, honestly, just really easy and so much fun. Um, the nonfiction, I I love. Um, researching things I'm interested in so the historical stuff that I was asked to write was always brilliant fun because the topics were just amazing and like you say once you delve into something it was always super interesting so I absolutely loved that but it was also you know it was writing about something that is a known subject so you know you could write scads and scads but it's it's a means to an end there's sort of an end point you're you're covering a topic once that topic is covered you're kind of done and and I'd always want to write fiction. I've, I'd always written, I, I started the same novel, honestly, about 10 times and wrote the same, you know, 2000 words, 10 times. And then eventually, um, and, you know, I, f- I feel really bad saying this because having written a novel and working on the second one, I know how hard it is. And I know it, it is such an achievement um, for anybody who, who actually does it. But I read Fifty Shades of Grey and was like, this is dire. I'm so sorry because I do. I am impressed. Oh, don't don't apologize. <laughs> no, but I just, as a writer, I you know, um, but no, but you know, you know, self-publishing has its positives and its negatives. Hmm. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it does. It's got its positives and its negatives. Just yes, and just you know, I was so excited when because I got it. It was years ago when it was free on Kindle Unlimited, and you get your recommendations. And I was like, oh, my God, this sounds perfect. How exciting. And I was like, really? 
really the 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 you know the dominant in the relationship has been abused as a child that's what you're going with and I just thought this is such well it it was definitely written by somebody who was not kinky yes and I just there's a thing about writing what you know and about you know writers often write about things they don't know about I mean that is part of yes being an author however I've written fiction since I was a kid in terms of short stories I've just never done the novel thing I suppose my my erotic memoir could be considered, but it's not fiction. Uh, yes, parts, it, it reads like it's not parts fiction. Of it are fiction, but parts of it are yeah. not. Um, but you know, I I write about things I know, and um, or things that at least I can, I've been exposed enough to that I can find out more, and and I reasonably know. I do not yeah. write for the most part. I do not write about things I don't know anything about. Um. But lots of authors do, you know, they go and they get an idea and they get some characters and they go and they research so that they're speaking, you know, with some, they, they've learned something about it. Yes. With, with, the, with Fifty Shades, it was clear that this person had no idea how things work. Yeah. And that was problematic because so many Very people awesome. modeled their kink lives on. Yeah. And it was just, it was heartbreaking for me because here you have a book that got so successful, which, you know, which is amazing, which was bringing kink like into the mainstream and it was awful. And I was like, has this happened? So I finally got my butt in gear. I was like, you can do better than this. Um, And so I've started, I I actually started writing one book and immediately was like, this is at least four. So I've written the series, well, I'm writing the rest of the series because I just wanted I wanted there to be books out there that's erotica, but it's intelligent erotica, and it includes the kink community in a non-pejorative sort of othering way. It's and there are people. I mean, there are people who are great. There are authors I refer to all the time, like um, Cecilia Tan, for example, who's phenomenal. um, Who writes um, kink and BDSM sci-fi and fantasy. Amazing. I think you might have mentioned that in your talk, actually. Oh my God, Cecilia (laughs) Tan. Cecilia Tan's incredible. one of my favorite stories in the entire world. I mean, um, she writes full length novels, but she writes right. short stories as well. Uh-huh. And one, of my, one of my favorite stories in the whole wide world is called Telepaths Don't Need Safe Words. <laughs> well, I love the premise of that already. <laughs> and it is phenomenal. And then she did a whole book based on those characters called The Velderay. Um, and, you know, well worth it. Um, uh, Laura Antonou, who did the Marketplace series. Mm-hmm they're wonderful. Laura's bright and the, and, and a great writer. And there's um, even fan fiction that's been written. Oh, amazing. Yes. Story, story fan fiction and stuff, but they never got to the place where, um, where they hit mainstream, which is so yeah. to me horrible because they're actually, they're fiction, but from somebody with, with a really deep knowledge of yeah. the um, community um, of the BDSM and King community, of the leather community, of the fetish community. And so, um, no, there really is no place where there's a marketplace where they're trading, right? Yeah. But, but the reality is, is that all of the bits and roles have real reality. If, you, if you're actually in the community, you're like, yeah, I recognize that. And yeah. then the funniest one that she did was she did the Killer War Leather, which was based around a leather con- contest and conference. And it's really? a con- it's a comedy and it's hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's just, you know, and yet, you know, 
compared to the author of um, Fifty Shades, like this person's, a, you know, doesn't make a decent living as a full-time author and has written amazing stuff. Yep. And it's, this it's person, you know, and I look at it and I'm like, this is, you know, it's a bad romance novel with yep. King BDSM thrown in. That's it, exactly. And if you like to read, you know, trashy romance, you crack on. You know, I love a trashy romance, but it was it was because of what I think it was trying to do and failing to do that it, mm. it like it almost actually offended me. <laughs> and I was like, people need better than this. And so many people are frightened of of the kink, not the kink community as in individuals, but of, of kink and they don't really understand it. And I think if there's something that can kind of bridge that, you know, and books that are kind of, I don't want to use the word normal because I don't mean that, but books that are more mainstream. Well, it's accessible. I mean, I write, yeah. I write um, 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 erotic short stories and um, with the exception in one, in one of my collections, there's two stories that are quite accessible right. for entry kink and BDSM people. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and, the rest, and the rest of the stories are not accessible because they're, they're edgy. Yes, there's a couple of years I really liked um, in the in the memoir, the like the little the sort of little snippets of erotica you included. But yes, definitely a few that would would be definitely not accessible for people who were wanting to dip their toe. Shall we? Yeah, say. no, no, it's, I, I don't recommend it as something accessible. No. <laughs> in, in, in the book of short stories, like when people are like they really want to read this, and I'm like, okay, so if you want to read it, I'm going to tell you which stories to read that are accessible. The rest of them are not accessible. They're intense. Yeah, because they're not dealing with because um, they're dealing with intense kinks. They're dealing exactly. with edge kinks, right? Um, and and I can write things that don't deal with edge kinks. I can write that like I think chopping wood is the one that's the most accessible. Right. And you know, I mean, that's a really accessible romantic story with you know fun stuff in it with tying up and beating yeah. and all of that, <laughs> um, but, but nothing really edgy. And um, and that's great. But I tend to write things that are more edgy because I like them, and yeah. so. I'm catering to an audience that often doesn't get catered to. So, you know, it's like, well, that's the other thing. Yeah, absolutely. That's true as well. That there's something out there, but, um, but when people are first starting out, you want to offer them something that's well-written and accessible at the same time. And that's not yes. always so easy. No, exactly. It's not always yeah. so easy because lots of stuff is just not well-written. No. And, and, and yeah, a lot of it can be very niche, which is great. And, fantastic if that's what you're you're into and stuff which is wonderful but again it's not it's never going to be that mainstream but you know what but you know what it's really good to to read the things that aren't accessible to see how you react and I'll tell you I'll tell you where I got that model there's a guy um god I'm gonna misremember his name (laughs) so I'm just about to type in here we go Yes, I was right. There's a guy called James Williams wrote a book of short stories called "But I Want," uh, but I know what you want. Right. He's an excellent writer. Amazing. I'll have to look. And his stories are completely challenging. Right. And they're going to be. And so, like, there's there's one story, um with with um, a really graphic sexual assault in it that you don't want to be turned on by but you're turned on by it's yes. one of those things and I like that um and I've had that people say I remember I remember somebody coming to me after reading um the first part of my memoir in tears and I was like 
what's up? You know, I thought they were going to say they were triggered. And I was like, well, go deal with your trigger. Right. Yeah. <laughs> no, and and it, but it was somebody I knew not very well, but they were really upset. And I said, what's up? It was like, well, you know, I didn't really get the division between fantasy and reality. And I found myself turned on by the actual thing you experienced, which was horrible. And I was like, you can stop crying. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> that's, that's part of the point. Yeah. And there's that, yeah, and um, you talk about and there's, and there's understanding that just because you didn't like this in reality, didn't like it at the time, doesn't mean it's not something you wouldn't have that fantasy material about. Exactly. And that, that, that doesn't make you a horrible human and that, you know. And so I quite like the place where it isn't mainstream, easily accessible, because what you're doing is you're challenging people. Yeah. Like, like, it's like work where there's, where, where bias has shown up, you know, uh, and, and stuff like that. You're actually challenging people to rethink some of their stuff. Yeah. And I really like when that's done with, with kink and fetish and BDSM because it's not done a lot. No, it's not. I think, I mean, the, the original, obviously, there's the Marquis de Sade, of course. Yes. And uh, his his work, which, you know, people reference all the time. And you know when they reference it that they haven't read it. <laughs> like, if you had read this. I mean, yeah, because it's really, it's not easy to read. I have oh. read it. And it's not yeah. easy to read. Um, 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 it's it's quite, and Venus and Furs as well, Sasha. You know, again. Oh, yes. uh-huh. Again, not easy to read. Um, yeah. And I mean, even even the story of O isn't so easy to read and 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 return to the chateau. But see, this is what I cut my teeth on because this is all that was available to us. Me too. This is the, I read these when I was young. Yeah, I was I was, I was um I was fourteen. Yeah, first. yeah, yeah. Me you too. Know. And parts of the the um, I was trying to remember the word the name is one hundred twenty days of Sodom, isn't it? It's like the, the yes. yeah. you know parts of that was was horrific to me, but still interest in, and you know still like enjoyable um but I love the story of all but yeah it, it I went back and read that later actually um and it is there you know there's it's it's darker than people I think expect sometimes yeah and so there's layers and so I do think there's you know and I, I do think there's something to be said for reading something outside your kind of normal wank yeah. father right you know call it wank father because that's what it is <laughs> right you know for not just picking up the book to read it because you know it turns you on and you know you can fantasize about it and then you can go and do your thing but to actually read something that's going to challenge you to reconsider what is what is the turn on what actually is the turn yeah because you find you find yourself on not wanting to be turned on but turned on because the characters are turned on yes uh uh-huh even to like despite yourself right and then you're like oh oh god And then you have to actually think about, well, wait a minute. Yeah. It's what do you say about that? So it's I, I quite like stuff like that. Yeah. It, you've just reminded me. It's very funny. So I follow this author on Instagram. And actually, I haven't read any of her work, but her, the stuff she posts is always hilarious um, in terms of just, you know, the, the things she says. But she writes very, very dark romance. And she says that. And she has, you know, everything she put, she will have at least 20 or 30 trigger warnings. And they are absolutely. Yeah, and she makes a point of this is. Some of this is going to be very true for some people, and it's very, very dark. And and yet she will then post responses she gets from people who've read her books and hated them, but keep reading them and keep posting about how awful they are and how she's going to hell and she's a sinner and how could you write this? It's so disgusting and sexual abuse isn't funny. And 
And you're like, if you hate it that much, first of all, maybe don't read it. But also she is telling you what to like, calm down. <laughs> it's a book. It's not going to bite you. And it just, it, it cracks me up the vitriol that, you know. I've had somebody, somebody did a review of one of mine recently that was lovely, which was like, I like these three stories, <laughs> but I didn't need to read those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was like, everything isn't for everybody, yeah. I, you know, and, and I, it was almost saying, could you have divided it into two books? And the answer is no. 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 Yeah. I'm telling you, you should be exploring to see what it is that, you, you know, by all means, explore. Right. Yeah. I, most of my stuff is is reasonably dark um, yeah. or, or edgy because that's that's me. Yes. And when you read the memoir, you actually really understand. When you read the memoir, you have a really good understanding of why my erotica looks like it does. Yes. Um, and um, but it but it was really funny when I put that out. That was like, oh God, that was hard. Um, I struggled with that for many years as to whether how I was going to write this. And it was a book coach that I was working with, um, the inimitable Meg John Barker, who's mm. the most book coach on the planet. Um who said, I think you should write this as an erotic memoir. And I said, what? <laughs> What's uh -huh. an erotic memoir? And they said, you put a piece of erotica and then you put the, the reality. Um, and they said, I think that that and then some analysis would actually be really intense and would really, um, would really, it would really add value and it would really end up giving people a, a much better view of you and your life, but also a much better view of, of a way to look at themselves and a way to consider themselves and their own stuff. And because of what I do for a living, that really appealed to me. Yeah. Uh, and so what I did was um, I, uh, I've been collecting stuff for about 15 years um, where I'd write snippets and I put it away and I, and I had erotica from the time I was 12. Um, and the stuff from when I was 12 was really funny, but, um, but, I digress, but I had stuff, yeah. <laughs> stuff and I pulled it all together and I pulled quotes out all together. Um, and I got set up to write, to just to decide. So I decided kind of roughly what was going to be in the book in terms of the erotica. So that was one stage where I had to actually go through everything and go, okay, I don't know which piece is going to go where, and I don't know if all of them will go in, but this is the pile of stuff I'm going to put in this and the rest I'm not. Um, and then, um, um, NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, which is in November every year, um, I got set up for NaNoWriMo 2019 that I'd said I was going to write a draft, a, a full draft. And it was just before I was about going to do that, that I realized that I hadn't returned to the place of my biggest trauma, that I'd never gone back. Oh, and wow. I was having trouble writing certain segments and I thought, fuck it. So I went on a road trip in the October and I spent three weeks revisiting places Wish. that were going to be in the book, which was really intense and really cool. Mm. Um, and then came back and sat down for NaNoWriMo and, and wrote the draft from start wow. to finish. Um, and then put it out early 2020, um, um, early, well, in the middle of, in the middle of the first lock. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting because obviously you write about some quite hard things and there are some quite hard things, but it's not a hard read, which I'm a good writer. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, like it's beautifully written. But I mean, like it's not, it's not written, or it doesn't read like it's written from the like perspective of trauma. So it's because it's not, and it just it reads like a beautiful story that obviously has some very dark elements 
Um, but it's, yeah, it's written in a way that draws you in as opposed to repels you out. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it, I, ideally, I want it to be uplifting. Um, and, and the reason that I'm able to do that is because I'm not traumatized anymore. And that's a thing. That's also a reason for writing this, which is people believe that when you've been through something like that, that inevitably that means that you're um, you're traumatized for the rest of your life. That's it. Yeah. And, and it doesn't, um, there, there's good therapy. Um, uh, there are good techniques yeah. and there are good ways of doing the work and the work is like on multi levels. And I, you know, I've done the work. It's really interesting because, um, one of the characters and, um, one of the people in the memoir is somebody that I, Sarah, who's somebody who I had on on and off relationship Mm -hmm. with. And at the time that I was writing this, it was not fully off, but off. I mean, we were kind of barely friends. Right. um, but I met him when I was 21 and, and um, one of the main reasons, and I think it comes clear in the book that we weren't together was because he needed to do his work and didn't do his work. So when yeah. I was 21, he was 37. So that's like to keep Very, in mind, yeah. it's like 1984. So um, about six months ago, November, December, maybe December. But it wasn't until after the new year that we really talked. So hmm. in December, I reached out to him because um, so now I'm uh, at that point, I was 59. He's 75. Okay. Um, and I reached out to him because um, when somebody holds that much of your history, the tie never broke. The tie was always there. You're still there. Yeah. And I hadn't hadn't spoken to him in some time. And I was anxious about how he was. And realized there were things I wanted to say before he died and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So, so I reached out and um, eventually I heard back. But the tone of the person that wrote back to me was so different than what I was used to that I was quite shocked. And we started uh-huh. texting. And, and there here was this person talking about their feelings who never talked about their feelings ever. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And I discovered that after all those years, he decided to do his work. And so he was like, you know, I know what your setup is and I'm not going to interfere with that, but I want to know if there's a place for me. And I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> what? Yeah. So after 39 years, we're in a, we're in a relationship now. And like, it's like, it took 39, 39 years, years. To, sort this, <laughs> to sort this shit out. You know, I'm like, so we started seeing each other again and, um, and my system works. I mean, he fits really well and everybody, yeah, everybody, nice. yeah. everybody's fine, which is good. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the first time I went to see him, which was in April, um, we ended up talking about the trauma in my life and the stuff that I experienced and the aftermath, because he was not around for the, for what happened, but uh-huh. he was part of the aftermath. And there were things that he brought up and in dialogue, things I realized that mean that I have to go back to the memoir because I'm, I'm going to want to tweak, rejig a piece, Uh want to put a post, a postscript on because um, there were things that I never was able to come to terms with or make sense of until we had this conversation. Some of it, I can't can't put in a book. Uh Yeah. Uh, but but some I'm I don't know when I'll do it because right now I have stuff on but I'm like oh I now have to go back and rejig some of that 
Um, because I think that one of the best bits um, is to be able to say, and people can decide to do their work at any age. Yeah, I love that though, that he, that, you know, eventually it happened. Like, oh, that was amazing. Seriously, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I've all, and I've always thought, you know, when people get into their 60s and beyond, you know, if they haven't worked on it and they're not in the habit of working on themselves, mm. they're probably not going to. So somebody had to show me up, right? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's probably still you can make that generalization, but um, I think it's never over till it's over. And oh yeah, and I've learned that. And so the when I wrote that, um, and I still feel this way. I mean, when I write stuff um, about trauma, I write stuff about the fact that you can come out the other side of it. And I'm realistic about how it impacts relationships. But mm-hmm. somebody said to me, you know, does it impact your relationships anymore? And it's like, well, no. Wow. It does in as much as it's part of who I am. Yes. And it's part but of I don't experience. have trigger warnings. I don't have trigger warnings on me. It's not like, oh my God, if you do the wrong thing, you're going to step on that. And that trauma yeah. like that doesn't get triggered. And that's fantastic. I mean, that is amazing considering, you know, some of the things that you, that you talk about and to know that must be so comforting for so many people. I completely freaked an audience out the other night because the way that, you know, the talk changes no matter what I'm doing. Of course. And somebody asked a question and the way they asked a question, I just said, you know, um, well, you know, I was killed during, you know, my, my first relationship, my first proper my first proper BDSM relationship, the guy killed me in the middle of it and, you know, then brought me back to life. And no, this was not fun. You know, no. yes, this, you know, yes, this was traumatic. And yes, um, uh, this did put me off stuff for a while, you know. Understandably like, so. Like, yeah. yeah. Like the way I, but, but it was me. I mean, so it didn't put me off because it was me. What it did yes. was make it more confusing. It didn't, yes. it didn't actually put me off. It just confused me. Yeah. Um, but the way that I said it was so matter of fact that like I watched part of the audience were like, you what? <laughs> yeah. Did we hear that right? You- yeah. Yeah. So, some, yeah. so somebody said, you don't sound traumatized. And I'm like, well, I'm not anymore. Yeah. You know, I was. And I, I'm, sometimes I forget when I talk about it that I because I don't talk about it with emotion that either people think they heard it wrong or don't believe mm-hmm. it or or they feel like that's weird. You know, and it's not yeah. weird. It's just not traumatic to me anymore. Um, it was the most traumatic incident of my life and it impacted every part of my being. It changed my career. It changed everything. Um, but it no longer has the power to trigger me. Yeah. But what it does do is have the power to get people to think about the decisions that they make and the ones that they make afterwards and how they want to live their lives. And I decided that I did not want to be a victim for the rest of my life. Um, and that being a survivor wasn't good enough. Um, and that I didn't want my life defined by the negative experiences that I'd had. Yeah. Um, and they then did the work to make sure that that's it. And that's why it reads that way, because it's being written from that perspective, from the perspective of somebody. It's being written from somebody who's already on the other side it's of it. Come out of it. Yeah. And being able to what is it, you say, reintegrate back into life. It's that you. Yeah. you yeah, you work through it and then you become a survivor and then you can sort of- Then, you go, I, then I say to people and thrive or living or, you know, yeah. back into life. I use all those terms. 
So there is, and in fact, my PhD research for my for my doctoral dissertation for my clinical psychology degree was um, from victim to survivor to, and beyond. And I did a treatment outcome study on the stuff that helped me get through. And I compared it to some other stuff. And yeah. that was what I did my research on. Um, and it, But it is a mindset change for most people. I, I think, well, it's uh, from victim to survivor is quite a common people understand that and you think about that, but they don't do the next bit. I'd never heard of the next bit until reading your work, you know, and it's like, it, once you, once you think about it, of course, that's where, you know, you would want to go. You, like you say, you don't just want to be a survivor. You want to then continue with your life. And I think that's amazing. And yeah, people don't have the tools and that's, that's part of what I do is try and help people gain those tools that they need to be able to do that. Um, And it's, you know, people are really resistant sometimes just like they're resistant to me saying, you know, I give trigger warnings sometimes and I don't at others because your triggers are yours. Yeah. And you're responsible for them. I'm not responsible for them. And back in the old days, and you will understand this because you're a bit older, but not old, as old as me. So, you know, not Methuselah. Um, but back in the old days, there were no fucking trigger warnings on anything. No. <laughs> right. And if, you're, if your trigger got tripped, then you dealt with it. Yeah. You can go and shout at the person who tripped the trigger unless somebody was doing it deliberately. Yes, unless it was, yeah, vindictive. So it but was no, malicious. Yeah. If you watched a movie and your triggers got tripped, that's your problem. If you read a book and your triggers got tripped, that's your problem. I mean, because we're adults and we um, need yeah. to deal with our triggers. And we're human. And things will happen to us. And, you know, we will have to, you have to, yeah, sort of. So that's experiences one of the things and- that I, I, I mean, I, I need to do a bunch of writing on this, which I haven't done recently, but I need to, is getting people to take better responsibility for things because the way yeah. that I see things going right now is asking the world to adjust to you. And, and with yeah. the, it, you know, I mean, there's, there people are being given false hope that the world will adjust to them right That's now. That's so true, yes. And yeah. Just and because, the bubble will yeah. burst and it will stop yeah. adjusting to them. It's true. And it, yeah, and it's more shocking for people who, yeah expect accommodations expect everything else to be worked out around their you know perspectives and their experiences and it's that the world doesn't work that way you know um and it's it's a hard fall when that you know when that happens it's like sorry (laughs) so where can people find vice which Ah. is the first book yay um it's on amazon so it's um available either you have you can buy it in kindle um, sort of ebook content or there's an actual physical book because I'm old-fashioned and um, yes and yeah it's you know um a modern kind of upmarket women's fiction but it's based around the sort of the, the kink community and, and it's delightful it's delightful so you can find oh, it there and if they want to connect with you oh yeah so um I'm on Instagram as Terrace Author but also I've got a website Terrace Author basically Terrace Author you will find me <laughs> And I'm oh, delighted yeah. to connect to everybody and anybody. Thank you so much for joining me and having this wide-ranging conversation. It's been brilliant. <laughs> no, thank you. I've loved every minute. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so thanks for listening, guys. And, and next week, the letter is R. Um, if you want to grab 30 minutes free with me, you have to write a review and enter my monthly contest because I give away 30 minutes free every month. That is at the moment, the only way to grab 30 minutes free with me. So either write a review of the podcast or one of the books, and I will put your name in a bowl and we choose one every month. The other way to get some access to me 
for not so terribly much money is to consider joining my new private members club. Um, that um, starts at just under 50 pounds a month and gives you access to a bunch of original content, um, the opportunity to ask questions in the group, either anonymously or with your name and get answers throughout the month and at least one live a month, sometimes with special guests. Um, it is a great way to get significantly more access to me than, for example, purchasing the answer to one question um, or hopefully catching me live on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook because I don't do loads of those because these days I'm running around the country speaking. Um, so if you're interested, uh, either email me or head over to my website, drlauribethbisbee.com. In the show notes, there's also a link so that you can join. If you have something special you want to hear about, do let me know. Email me at, at drlauribethbisbee.com. Have a brilliant week and stay safe.